First up today, we have an essay by Clint Margrave. He's the author of several books of fiction and poetry, including the novel Lying Bastard by Run Amok Books, and three poetry collections, Salute and Wreckage, The Early Death of Men, and most recently, Visitor, all from NYQ Books. His work has appeared in Three Penny Review, Rattle, The Moth, Ambit, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, among others. He teaches English and creative writing at California State University, Long Beach. His essay first appeared in the Times of Israel. 22.5 and Me, Am I Jewish Enough? by Clint Margrave. The other night, I had dinner with a colleague whose dad is from the Middle East and used to warn him as a child, you're going to hear bad things about the Jews. They're all lies. We talked a lot about the current moment after October 7th and the response that followed the massacre in Israel, both of us shocked by the emboldening of anti-Semitism in America and European cities, and especially on university campuses, including where we work. I told him about the high school history book my sister brought home when I was a kid with graphic images from the Holocaust of emaciated prisoners and mass graves and how I never fully grasped that this could have been my own family had they lived in a different time and place. He told me about his experience when he went into a store with his mom and saw an old man with numbers tattooed on his forearm and naively asked, why do you have those? The man gently explained it to him. I remember seeing those forearms. It wasn't that rare. Growing up, I was always aware of my Jewish heritage, but never thought much about it. Never really had to think about it. My mom's side, who we mostly spent time with, was vaguely Christian. So we celebrated Christmas and Easter, which was really just presents and chocolate bunny. My dad, though he never said it, was probably an atheist, like a lot of Jews. His God was Carl Sagan. In our house, we didn't observe anything Jewish, unless you counted Barbara Streisand, who both of my parents were obsessed with and even dragged a nine-year-old me to the movies one insufferable New Year's Eve to watch Yentl, which might have been the most Jewish thing we ever did as a family. The first time I even seriously thought about being part Jewish was at my great Aunt Louise's funeral in 2008, when her son gave a eulogy and told the story of my great-grandparents. Betty and Samuel Jacobs, who fled persecution in Eastern Europe during the late 19th century. A month later, my dad died of cancer. It had been an unexpected diagnosis and a quick end. In the hospital, the nurse asked him what religion he was. He said, well, my father was Christian. My mother was Jewish. I think I'd rather be Jewish. I remember visiting Grandma Nettie's house during the holidays. Though I don't recall any specific Jewish traditions, I do remember the crystal bowl of hard lemon candy, which she kept by the couch, and that I liked to stuff in my mouth. The same antique Louis XIV couch sits in my living room now, passed down like DNA. But I've dug through its cushions and haven't found any more clues as to who I am. The second time I really thought about it happened after Charlottesville. I was visiting my friend in Chicago when we saw on the news the men with tiki torches shouting, Jews will not replace us. I felt the need to say something. But what was I allowed to say? 
This was a strange new feeling for someone who'd never asked permission to say anything before. Part of me wanted to scream out, I'm a Jew too, in solidarity with my tribe. Except, was it really my tribe? I had so few cultural references. I'd never experienced anti-Semitism. Maybe my grandmother or father had, but nobody talked about it, just like they didn't talk about being Jewish, which in itself probably meant they had. I felt lost. Why don't you claim your cultural heritage? My friend said. He was half Korean, and after his mother's death, had leaned into it. I shrugged. Because I feel like an imposter, I said. Not to mention, I disliked identity politics. There were already too many people who exploited their identity to gain some kind of victim status. Besides, I joked, nobody cares about the Jews. Except maybe those men with tiki torches. What in their lives had made them blame everything on Jews? Weren't they also playing a version of identity politics, the white kind, to cultivate a sense of victimhood based on fictional anti-Semitic conspiracy theories? As lost as I felt, I wrote a Facebook post a few days later. I tried to choose my words carefully so that I could express solidarity without appearing to exploit my status as a member of a historically oppressed group. But in the end, I just told the truth. I'm not considered Jewish since it only comes from my father's side. I also wasn't raised Jewish, don't know the cultural customs nor the religious ones, except intellectuality. And in this age, when everyone's trying to claim membership to one group or another, I think, despite my ancestry, it'd be dishonest. Still, after watching those Nazis chant, Jews will not replace us, I couldn't help but think of my great-grandmother, Betty Jacobs, who spoke Yiddish, fled persecution in Romania to come to the United States during the late 19th century. I couldn't help but think of her daughter, my grandma, Nettie. And most of all, I couldn't help but think of my father. I couldn't help but feel the urge to lay claim for all of them with every strand of my DNA. Hashtag solidarity. Hashtag Charlottesville. In his essay, The Anti-Semite and the Jew, Jean-Paul Sartre argues that oppression can make a person desire to assert his identity. I was two generations removed from any kind of oppression. I was not a victim. I'd never felt fear, not even remotely. If anything, what made me want to assert my identity at that moment was rage. Now, in the wake of the October 7th attacks, I'm feeling lost again. I'm feeling rage again at the reactions I'm seeing by coworkers, friends, members of the literary community. Mostly, I'm feeling sadness as I watch students at my college chanting, from the river to the sea, and my colleagues defending not their right to speech, but the speech itself. Or when I see clips of protesters fighting Jews outside the Museum of Tolerance over a screening of the Hamas massacres, which they claim is propaganda, or find myself in heated arguments with strangers on social media. I've always rejected the notion of the personal is political as any kind of argument. I still do. I've always agreed with Christopher Hitchens, who said upon first hearing the phrase, I knew in my bones that a truly bad idea had entered the discourse. I'd like to believe I'd never use my identity as a legitimate argument about war or foreign policy 
or in support of or as an excuse for the actions taken or not taken by any government. I also recognize that some of the responses by others, no matter how much I might disagree or think badly expressed or hopelessly misguided, are political and not bigoted in nature. But I'd be lying if I said that none of it feels personal. Am I a Jew? And if I say that I am, does that make me an imposter? It's a question I still don't know how to answer. A question I don't even know how to ask. A question I don't know if it's up to me to decide. What percentage of DNA makes somebody something? What percentage of family history? What percentage of anger or sadness or pride? Doesn't it only count if it comes from your mother's side? I'd asked a Jewish friend after I'd gotten my 23andMe test results, which confirmed I was 22.5% Ashkenazi on my paternal side. She said it can still hold weight, but she didn't seem to think it was that important. I don't know if it is or it isn't, though it did leave me to wonder if the next Hitler would care about such distinctions. A few days after the attack, I saw a report that the 23andMe database had been hacked and somebody had stolen the information exclusively of anyone with Ashkenazi ancestry. The investigation is ongoing, but real or not, it doesn't seem impossible that if any genocidal maniacs wanted to, they could easily breach a database like 23andMe to target a specific ethnic group. A couple of days later, I received an email warning me that my account may have been comprised, recommending I change my password. I haven't bothered yet. You don't need to hack my genetic code to figure out whether or not you want to kill me. I may only be a small percent Jewish, but it's there, and it's not going anywhere. I won't try to hide it. Up next, we have a piece of creative nonfiction from Luther Cosmo Ickes Jr., born and raised on the always rough and tumble streets of West Hempfield, Luther graduated 688 out of 698 at Hempfield Area High School. It took Luther 32 years to graduate from Indiana University of Pennsylvania's philosophy program, but he pulled it off. Now, he's a self-proclaimed half-assed movie maker, a bad painter, and an even worse writer. I've not watched any of his movies. I've seen the previews, and they look great to me. But I can say that he is a wonderful painter, and I think an even better writer. I enjoy his paintings and his writings a lot. As a side note, he's also the owner of the Brillo Box Bar in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The format is interesting. This is a mini memoir in poems. So here is Pennsylvania Turnpike, Exit 7, by Luther Cosmo Ickes Jr. Prologue. Pigeon. Noun. 1. A stout seed or fruit-eating bird with a small head, short legs, cooing voice, typically having gray or white plumage. 2. A gullible person, especially someone swindled in gambling, the victim of a confidence trick. Used in a sentence. Hey, give that Pigeon Joey a call. We need a fourth for the gin game on Sunday. And I know he sold a few cars this week. Chapter 1. Tootie. 
It had been 24 years since the incident. I will put my foot in your cheating ass, you bitch, were her last words. The Greensburg police escorted her out of the building. She was told never to come back. There hasn't been a problem since the day she left. She gave her life raising three ungrateful children and a husband battling Parkinson's. She deserved a few cigarettes, a few frames, some shit-talking, and the occasional whiskey. Greengate Bolorama was under new management now, so it was worth a shot. She told herself to behave. Things would be different now. That lasted two weeks. She had been listening to Marie Nall's boisterous banter about how Don Sr. was going to clean up the country and build the wall to keep all the trouble out. She couldn't help herself. No one expected her to. You know what I think of Trump? She took her sweaty, rented bowling shoe off, put it directly in Marie Nall's face and said, Trump fucking stinks. Stinks like this shoe. Marie Nall punched her in the eye. Maybe it was because of the dishonorable discharge 50 years ago. Maybe it was when his wife left with the kids. Or when his father left when he was six. She stood up, grabbed him by the hair, dragging him from lane six to lane 11, before they were pulled apart. Someone was overheard saying, it's going to take a wall to keep Tootie out of the Bolorama. Chapter 2. Custis. He would wait for me after school at the bus stop. Three days a week, that big gray Caprice classic, windows tinted like a Secret Service agent. He stood about four and a half foot tall and had a voice to match. What are your plans for after high school, Lou? He knew I was going nowhere. I was 688 out of 698 in my high school class. Everyone else already had made plans for college or trade school or a job their father had lined up. I was going to spend the foreseeable future drunk and high on marijuana. Custis was the local army recruiter. He would prey on kids that struggled in school, like a Neanderthal high school bully hunting us down, looking for bodies to fill his quota. His delivery was the same every time, telling me how my life was going nowhere. How the army was right for me. How I could make a good life for myself. How I would make the perfect soldier. Pissed off and plenty of muscle. This went on for two years. Then one day, it came to an end. I simply asked, why don't you recruit the kids from the rich neighborhood? The bus drops those kids off first. And I've never seen you there. He never looked at me after. Chapter 3 Lincoln Hills Country Club. Country club by definition only, meaning it had a pool and golf course, a functioning restaurant, and more importantly, a bar. This was not the playground of the rich and famous. Made up predominantly of Westmoreland County's finest gamblers, sleazy Italian restaurateurs, dive bar owners, flunked out golf pros, and every half-assed used car salesman in a 30-mile radius. These men spent their weekends soaked in booze, trying their best to swindle their buddies out of 20 bucks. On the golf course or in the card room, gambling was the lay of the land. At the age of 11, I filled out tip sheets, 
delivered on Tuesday nights and turned back in on Friday. I looked forward to my dad bringing them home every week. My bookie was Jerry. I would give him $5 on a five-team sheet, hoping for the $50 payoff. I spent hours watching my dad and his cronies playing gin on Sunday afternoons, making sure I kept an eye on the football scores on the television. Green Bay giving four and a half to Detroit. Cincinnati getting six from the Oilers. I hit a few times. My formula never changed. Best quarterback first, then best uniforms. A father and son in a smoke-filled bar at an old country club off exit seven of the PA Turnpike. Chapter four, June, 1982. My dad informed me I would be golfing with him. I was in no position to argue. Fresh off the last report card of the year, a few C's, a couple of D's, an F or two, but I was on my way to sixth grade. I squeaked by at 11. I squeaked by today. His reliant K car was dead silent. I sat there, cautious of the conversation as he drove, not wanting to talk about anything that might somehow get back to my grades. We turned, we turned off Route 30 into the golf course parking lot, the rolling hills shining with that morning's dew. I noticed all of my father's pigeoned friends' vehicles. Top Dollar Joe's old red Fiat, Turtle Dan's Continental, and Dr. DeLoretto's beat-up blue Cadillac. But everyone's attention was focused on something else, a gold motorhome and matching trailer adorned with a giant white eagle flying on the side. Something was magnificently different that morning as we made our way to the clubhouse and entered the pro shop. At that moment, Lincoln Hills Country Club changed forever. Chapter 5. Religion for 11-Year-Old Boys Leaning confidently, dressed in gaudy, colored polyester golf wear, gray hair combed perfectly, stood Evil Knievel. I was numb. This was the man that jumped the endless school buses. The man who jumped Snake River Canyon. The man who jumped Caesar's Palace. The man that jumped a giant tank of sharks. Every kid in America had the Evil Knievel wind-up stunt cycle. We spent the 1970s lining up garbage cans, making whatever changes we could to make our bicycles a few ounces lighter for flyability speeding down neighborhood hills towards unchecked ramps made of logs and old plywood, praying for an easy landing or just a landing. There was Evel, standing right in the middle of Irwin, PA. Knowing I was amazed, he extended his hand and said, Hello, I'm Evel. Chapter 6, Nestling In Oddly enough, Evel Knievel sold himself as a skilled painter. He was driving across the country selling autographed prints of his paintings. He did weird Wild West stuff, the kind you see on Louise L'Amour's book covers. He did paintings of Geronimo, or maybe of a cowboy breaking a stray horse, Wild Bill Hickok or Sitting Bull, all extremely detailed, all ranged from $1,000 to $3,000, depending on the frame. Evelyn had found a new home. He claimed to really like the golf course and decided to stay a while, but it was much more than that. He'd found his people, a captive audience that loved gambling, golf, good strong drink, shitty Western art, and maybe a little cocaine when nobody was looking. He was back on top here, on top of this little town. 
my father and Evel became fast friends. Evel was always kind to me. He took me to his trailer to show off his two red, white, and blue Harley XR750s, the ones he used for all his big jumps. I would caddy for him, ride with him in the golf cart. He would always insist I drive, and he would always tell me to push it, kid. And push it I would, barreling down the green fairways, pedal to the metal, Evel laughing the whole way. He was king that summer. When he showed up at the swimming pool, all the golfers' wives, 10 years past their expiration dates, would go crazy. They pranced around shamelessly in their string bikinis. Evel never swam or took his shirt off, though. He just milled around, smiling, flirting with all the wives, as they sipped their martinis poolside. Once, after swimming, I was in the locker room. Evel walked by in nothing more than a towel. Hey, Louis, he said. I replied, hey, Evel. His body was distorted, horribly bent. It looked like someone had grabbed him and wrung him out like an old wet towel. I just remember him lurching towards the shower and thinking he was 85 and wouldn't be alive much longer. He'd just turned 43. As summer rolled, a darkness crept in. Evel agreed to get out his bikes and give an exhibition to the kids at the pool. Just some wheelies and a few laps around the lot, he showed up too drunk to walk at noon and fell over, trying to get one of the bikes out of the trailer. The exhibition was canceled. A group of 30 kids hung their heads. Evel was a known womanizer. He did nothing to hide it. He had no boundaries, and there were rumors about a few wives, as well as the 18-ish-year-old lifeguard, who just stopped showing up to work. Evel owed everyone money, club members, restaurant owners, bookies, drug dealers, gangsters. Chapter 7, The Fall. One cool, late August morning, we pulled in to find the motorhome gone. No goodbyes, and certainly no thank you. No plans to keeping in touch. No exchanged phone numbers. Left were a trail of IOUs and unpaid debts. We later found out that the paintings weren't his. He'd contracted an artist and just signed the bottom corner. This small town had just been railroaded by a good old-fashioned snake oil salesman. Here, in all his glory one day, gone the next. Nothing left but a few pigeons on a wire, staring at their paintings. $3,000 paintings of Crazy Horse. We're going to wrap things up with a song today by a band out of Royersford, Pennsylvania, called Dear Friend. This is their first single, Blood Moon. Before we play it, remember, if you'd like to submit one of your short stories or essays, you can do that at jnewbooks.com. Also, if you're in a band or you know someone who is in a band that would like a small boost, you can drop us a line and we'll feature that song at the end of the podcast, if we like it. Okay. Here we have Dear Friend with their first single, Blood Moon. Did you see? 
Friend.